Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. IATP's work touches a lot of areas, and one that uh, has not been a huge visible focus for us uh, in the last year or so, uh, but is still very much a, a serious strain of our work, is uh, what's happening in China uh, with food and agriculture. And just last fall, we actually published a website called China Food Watch, which is a mapping project of the food and agriculture organizations in China with updates on what they're working on. Joining me today is IETP's former president, Jim Harkness, who is an expert on food and ag in China. Um, and we're going to talk more generally about what the food and agricultural systems in China are like, and then more specifically about some of the projects and policy that IETP is involved in. Uh, so, Jim, let's let's start with the 30,000-foot view. Um, how did you end up in China, and what drew you there? It's, it all gets back to Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, the high school I went to happened to have a Chinese program. It was part of a busing uh, magnet school uh, program. They had seven foreign languages, including Russian, Swahili, and Chinese. And Chinese was the language I chose, and I never looked back. So speaking Chinese is one thing. Spending a significant portion of your life in China is another. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I had some very fortunate opportunities. I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, started doing some volunteer work for an organization called the International Crane Foundation, a very excellent, small, non-governmental organization that works on wetland and bird conservation all over the world from Baraboo, Wisconsin, of all places. And they asked me to do some work for them in China. And um, China was just opening up to foreigners after the Cultural Revolution at that time. This was the late 70s, early 80s. And so by virtue of the fact that I was doing something so obscure, um, I, I was able to get into a lot of really interesting corners of the country and... Um, have really amazing opportunities to see the interaction between people and nature in China during a very important time um, in the country's history. And that just got me more and more excited about um, studying not just the language, but also the culture and also the environment. And um, and as I said, you know, living 30 years ago this spring, I, I spent time living in, in a peasant's house in central China while monitoring a bunch of cranes. And I ended up spending a lot of my time watching the farmers arguing over how they were going to divide up their land according to the new government policies for dividing up farmland. And so that was a very key moment actually in my career and the development of my, my interest in the country. Over the last 30 years, mm -hmm. there's been a big transition from basically peasant agriculture to more industrial agriculture. Talk a bit about that transition and what's actually happened mm -hmm. to the peasants who were doing the farming. Well, compared to other countries where there has been this transition from, from you know, say, even, even over the last 30 years, other countries that have gone through a similar, sort of a similar transition, say Thailand or, or Indonesia, the transition in China has been somewhat different because there's one key difference, which is that um, land is still collectively owned. And farmers, by virtue of living in a village, still have the right to farm uh, a plot of land um, as long as they uh, have their residence um, in that village. So although 
um, some of the a lot of the technologies of industrial agriculture have have um, permeated very deeply into China. Um, you know, hybrid seeds and high yielding varieties and and chemical pesticides and chemical fertilizers and mechanization. The farm sizes are still very small and have actually gotten smaller over the last 30 years as population has grown and land continues to be divided up. So you have this um, kind of a bimodal agricultural system where in some areas um, on the edges of China uh, where, where prairies or wetlands were converted into agricultural land by the army, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, those now are very large state farms, and they are—they look like they could be in Iowa or Nebraska, but most of China, the farms are still still quite small. The challenge is that they're trying to use more and more um, intensive chemical inputs um, in these very small um, in these very small farms um, in and the. Industries for agricultural inputs are not well regulated. There is a very poor agricultural extension system. So you're, you're ending up with really severe environmental problems associated with agriculture because of overuse of chemicals and poor management of things like animal wastes, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, there is a, a not insignificant sustainable agriculture movement in China. Mm -hmm. Is there a parallel to the United States where... Um, you know, we sort of see the hollowing out of the middle. A lot of what we hear in the West and internationally is that the future is all about large industrial farms and that mm -hmm. that's how we're going to feed the world. And the fact is that China has been very successful over the last 40, 50 years in feeding itself on these very small farms that are now average of about a half an acre in size. But it shows that scale is not... Um, uh, scale does not automatically is not an automatic requirement for food security, and I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Looking in other parts of the world where there is this push to um, increase farm size, you asked about um, what a sort of the future of farming in China and farming in China compared to the United States in terms of uh, family agriculture, family managed farms, and actually the government last year for the first time used the word family farm instead of peasant agriculture. And this is because in China, peasant agriculture is associated with these farms that have become so small now at less than a half an acre on average that they really are impossible to manage as a as a sole income source for a family, right? It's almost impossible to for people to feed themselves just planting on that size. And at the same time, there's a huge migration of people to cities um, where incomes are higher, there's industry and all of the things that have always attracted people from the countryside to the city, added to which government policies um, have generally squeezed the agricultural sector. So um, it makes farming a less pleasant um, uh, profession than it otherwise might be. So the government now is hoping to encourage new types of land rental or other types of tenure arrangements so that you could have, um, you could still have farms managed by a single family, but those farms could be a little bit larger. So the statistics I saw recently was they were hoping for 
something like two or three hectares in southern China and maybe three to five hectares in size in northern China. So these are still, by U.S. standards, very small farms. Um, but the, the, the thought is that um, economically they'll be more viable units for mm -hmm. production um, if they can be a bit larger than they are now. The so where does, uh, where does sustainability fit into that? You know, by the admission of people in the, in the agriculture and the environment uh, agencies in China, just doing more of what they're doing now is not a viable solution. So currently it's just, you know, can we be more effective in our use of, of nitrogen fertilizer? <laughs> or can we develop a seed that will yield just, yield just a little bit more? Um, and that's, that's definitely not working. I think that um, the, the, the government solution at this point still is large-scale, um, chemical-intensive, technology-intensive. Um, but as we discussed earlier, there is a uh, more grassroots movement for a more sustainable type of agriculture that is very much tied to producing food that is um, produced in an environmentally friendly way and that is therefore uh, safe and healthy. Because one of the one of the unintended consequences of this highly chemical intensive agriculture system is there are tremendous problems with food safety issues in China. Everything from um, counterfeit foods in the marketplace because of poor regulation to pesticide residues, you know, cadmium being found very regular in white rice. <laughs> and um, so one of the things China is such a diverse country that, you, that it's very difficult to say to make any blanket statements about the country, one blanket statement you could make is everybody is worried about what's in the food. <laughs> and on that basis, there is a real demand by people in cities for safer food. And therefore, um, some farmers have taken up that challenge and are trying to farm in different ways. And oftentimes they're farming in ways that are... Um, going back to a lot of traditional practices and then adding, you know, new knowledge about, um, you know, mechanization or, um, uh, or other types of, you know, substitute organic inputs they can use. So there is a, there is a sort of um, uh, unorganized uh, sustainable agriculture um, movement in China. And associated with that also is the notion that that the connection between the people who grow food and the people who consume food has been lost mm -hmm. and the trust in that <clears throat> relationship and the the notion of a fair relationship between them has been lost and part of that is this new movement toward things like um, community supported agriculture farms you and IATP had a hand in getting that started in China would you maybe characterize your work uh, as um, organizing that unorganized group of, I mean, are you playing a role in that? Um, I, no, not oh. me, but I would say perhaps aiding and abetting those <laughs> who want to make a more just and sustainable food system there. So an old friend of mine from my days in China, um, Professor Wen Tiejun, who's a, a very well-known agricultural economist, uh, he and I became reacquainted uh, just when I was starting at IATP, and I told him the kind of organization it was, and he said, oh, 
I would love to send one of my graduate students um, to Minnesota. Can you, can, do you think you can find a, an organic farm that, that she could study and work on? And I said, okay, if that's what you want. And so he sent a PhD student named Shriyan in the spring of 2007, I believe it was. And we talked to the people at Earthrise Farm out in Western Minnesota, near Madison, Minnesota. And I took her out there in April. And the, you know, the second week she was on the farm, they had six inches of snow. And she was a, she was a um, you know, being trained, getting a PhD at one of China's top universities and not in, not in agronomy. Uh, you know, she was a, an economics student. So it was quite an unusual thing for a Chinese intellectual like her to be voluntarily um, being sent down to, you know, work with the, the peasants in, in, in America of all places. So she actually had a blog the entire time she was on the farm and became a little bit of a celebrity back in China because of the incongruity. I mean, it was sort of like a reality TV show, right, you know, yeah. in the United States. It's like, what's she doing on the farm? And she went back to Beijing, and not only did she complete her PhD, but she set up a farm herself, a CSA farm in the suburbs of Beijing um, called Little Donkey Farm, uh, which immediately became, again, she was already a little bit of a celebrity, and the farm immediately became kind of a media magnet, like, wow, what's this, what's this, you know, what's this scholar doing digging in the dirt? It was like something from back in the old Cultural Revolution days. Right, uh, right. And yeah. so it had that twist to it as well. And it became uh, extremely popular CSA and then became a training center um, for young people who were interested in starting their own farms. And from there, the movement really took off. There, there actually were, there was one other group based in Hong Kong um, called Partners in Community Development that had been supporting some CSA farms in southern China. So IATP was not the only organization that was helping promote this, but it really took off after 2007, 2008 when she returned. And now there are probably a thousand or more CSAs across China, and they have a large annual meeting that reminds me a little bit of the Moses Organic Conference that we have here in the Midwest. And it's a really, um, really buzzing um, sector, mm -hmm. um, despite huge challenges that they face. So speaking of challenges, one of the major challenges uh, facing China right now is the demand for meat. Mm -hmm. So how is that putting pressure on some of the farms that you've talked about mm -hmm. and some of the larger farms? Mm -hmm. And I mean, how does it affect the whole ecosystem of farming in China? Well, the... The increasing demand for meat is in some ways inseparable from the globalization of Chinese agriculture. So as of the 1980s and 1990s, China hadn't yet joined the World Trade Organization. It was um, essentially growing everything for itself. There was very little agricultural trade of any kind. And in preparation for the World Trade Organization or joining the WTO, China realized in the agricultural negotiations that they were going to need to um, lower uh, tariffs on uh, some basic agricultural products. And they have a long-standing um, food self-sufficiency policy that says 95% of domestic demand for 
rice and wheat and corn needs to be met by Chinese domestic production. And so in order to protect that, they said, all right, well, the, the fourth major um, sort of feedstock, starch source, whatever, it's not really a grain um, that we grow is soybeans. So we will deregulate soy trade. And they did that in the late 1990s and immediately became the by far the world's largest trader in soybeans and importer of soybeans. So uh, at this point, you know, well over half of the soybeans in international trade are headed to China. And they're headed to China to feed mostly to feed to pigs and chickens. And so, you know, on the one hand, your domestic economy, if you're China in the 80s and 90s, is chugging along and people's incomes are increasing. Um, but on the other hand, the government is concerned that um, to meet the growing demand for meat, the existing agricultural system, which is essentially growing a couple of pigs in your backyard, they were concerned that that wasn't going to be quick enough or, you know, uh, produce a large enough volume of, of meat. So they really bet on um, uh, factory farming and decided what we need to do is move from um, diversified small farms where pigs are eating table scraps and whatever you know, a sort of varied diet, and then our their their manure is getting spread back on fields to uh, much more concentrated uh, systems where you have a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand head uh, of, of pigs being fed commercial feed, um, and um, therefore getting fat faster and getting to market quicker and meeting this demand because you know China was a peasant revolution and and meeting. Giving people the food they want, I think the leadership there recognizes as an important thing. Even after you've, um, you know, achieved food security, there's just then the question, as you were saying, of changing tastes. So, um, you know, in the 2000s, there was the very rapid process of, uh, on the one hand, the demand for meat rising and then it being met uh, increasingly by industrial pork production um, using imported grains, imported soy, and not so much corn, but nowadays they are starting to import a certain amount of corn. This, because these new factory farms were subsidized by the government, they were given a, a wide variety of incentives. Um, uh, once a farm reached 10,000 head of pigs, the 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 manager of the farm would get a prize. The, the whole goal was, we want a 10,000 pig farm. So that, in in effect, undercut the prices that um, back, backyard producers were able to get. And so um, small farms that had been very diversified and had been using pig manure for fertilizer then were abandoning raising pigs and using more um, chemical fertilizers. So you know, you can see the 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 breakdown of of the cycles of things like nutrient management that would mm -hmm. that that otherwise would maybe have prevented some of the pollution problems that they're <clears throat> that they're having. Um, and now there's a situation where, you know, at best, some rural families may grow, may raise a, a pig or two for their own consumption. But um, pork in the marketplace is very much dominated by uh, very large industrial enterprises. Mm -hmm. So last week on the podcast, we talked about how hedge funds are buying cattle farms. Mm. Um, and 
Uh, but you t- you talked about how Chinese agriculture and globalization are inseparable right mm-hmm. now. I'm wondering what the effect of imports of of livestock is now on that system. If a farmer is getting a price for having 10,000 pigs, is are they feeling pressure from international markets too, or are they still more or less protected by government policy? The government really has a both-and policy toward meeting its domestic demand. There was a time about five years ago when there was this fierce debate um, should we just import more feed and raise the pigs here? And the argument was um, that way we're adding value in China rather than buying a finished product. You're buying, you're adding the value in China and realizing that inside the country, better to buy the raw materials and, and do the processing here versus why would we want all that pollution? <laughs> um, and people were very frank in saying that to me that like, why not have... North Carolina or, you know, another country uh, have to deal with uh, the the all of the manure that comes with raising pigs. And we'll just take the we'll just take the meat. Um, And essentially, the solution has been both. Right. Mm -hmm. So they are continuing to import uh, increasing amounts of feed um, and their um, uh, their pork industry continues to grow. Um, but they are starting to import more and more. I, I would say at this point, um, the principal shakeup in the domestic pork industry actually is a result of environmental policy. And so along with air pollution, they've been trying to deal with water pollution. And the largest source of water pollution in China by far is agriculture, both runoff from fields, but also um, uh, animal agriculture waste. Um, last year, they began uh, enforcing uh, water pollution regulations against uh, animal operations, which and in China, uh, animal farms don't get a special pass the way they do in the United States to environmental laws. They are regulated or they, they are meant to be regulated just like everybody else to, based on how much they're polluting, not on what kind of uh, mm-hmm. product they're producing. And so um, <clears throat> thousands of um, thousands of pig farms have been forced to close. And that has been actually an opportunity for the larger players in the industry to move pork production toward ports, toward the northeast part of China where the grain production is happening. You know, there was a similar change in the pork industry in the United States to move to rural areas where workers weren't unionized and local communities wouldn't have the political power to oppose Mm -hmm. um, pollution and other problems, Um, but also so you could be close to your supply. Mm -hmm. And um, that that restructuring, that geographical restructuring of the of the animal industry in China is is now happening um, pretty rapidly. There's there's a People's Congress in China that's going to happen this year in the spring. Um, the, The three goals are uh, basically managing their debt-to-GDP ratio so they don't have a financial crisis, poverty reduction, and then reducing pollution. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to speculate a little bit. In, like what, you know, now that they, they're enforcing um, these regulations against um, factory farms, um, they're also still part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. To what extent are they um, going to manage this trade-off that you had kind of alluded to between um, actually creating uh, sustainable large-scale farms versus just kind of offloading that risk? Well, before we talk about the National People's Congress, which happens every every spring and is coming up next month, 
I think it's important to also talk about what's called document number one, because every year the state council, China's sort of China's cabinet or anyway, its top decision making body issues um, a series of documents that are sort of setting the direction for policy for the year. One of the important points in document number one is that it says we have been uh, very focused on the quantity of agricultural production up to now. And now we have reached a phase of development where we need to focus more on the quality of agricultural development. But the, but the tools in terms of policy and extension um, and, and, and technologies on the ground really aren't there, in my opinion, for China to overnight um, make that kind of transition. You know, in the United States, you see people saying, well, if we put a biogas digester on top of, uh, uh, on top of our manure uh, cesspit, um, then, then we're doing climate-friendly agriculture. And I think that in, within China, um, the, the overall direction probably will be more things like that. Hmm. And, and it's not surprising that they would see that as sort of low-hanging fruit. Um, and, you know, how do we become more efficient? There, there are huge efficiencies to be realized in Chinese uh, fertilizer use. There's tremendous overuse now. I think that there are gains to be made in just saying, well, we want to just be more efficient in our adoption of, you know, industrial green revolution technologies. Uh, if there are ways to show that more ecological forms of agriculture can, um, you know, can produce healthy food, that there's a demand for them within the country, um, I think that the case can be made and that there are people who want to do that um, for mm -hmm. Um, a more tr sort of transformative uh, shift um, in at least some sectors of Chinese agriculture. Um, and certainly that's the kind of work that I want to get involved in. Mm -hmm. um, but there is also an issue, which is that if they turn to quality rather than quantity, then um, the question emerges, if we're growing higher quality foods and accepting lower yields, then we may not have enough food um, through domestic production to feed everybody. So we'll maybe need to import more food. And then the question becomes, where is that coming from and how is it being produced in those countries? And would China consider um, moving more polluting forms of agricultural production to, to other countries and, uh, um, and uh, simply um, importing the, the finished products? Whether that happens now as China's domestic um, tries to sort of clean up its domestic food and agricultural sector is an open question. And, and um, I think it's an important area to monitor. And obviously, a lot of that will depend on the countries that are exporting to China and what their uh, notion of, of sovereignty and environmental mm -hmm. protection is. Okay, so backing up a little bit to the, the point you made about the organizations that are, are working to promote agroecological and sustainable methods of production. Um, we've undertaken this project uh, with the Grace Foundation to create uh, a mapping project and then an, uh, sort of a news site on what these NGOs are doing in China. Uh, tell us about that project. The, the project and the website, which is called ChinaFoodWatch.com, look for it in your grocer's freezer, is- Or the internet. Or the, or the <laughs> internet for that matter. <laughs> Um, 
is, as you said, an attempt to map out what civil society is working on in order to help China have a food system that's more just and more sustainable. And there are a range of Chinese non-governmental organizations, um, international organizations and, and NGOs like IATP, um, and also things like um, charitable foundations inside and outside the country that... Um, for a variety of reasons, are concerned about this very rapidly growing demand for food in China and and how it can be met in ways that are sustainable. And so um, we essentially, you know, by just calling people up and, and emailing them, uh, started collecting data and, and we wound up with uh, close to 60 organizations um, from, again, inside and outside of China. Uh, and on the website, we uh, show, we have a, a mapping tool, so we show geographically where their headquarters are located. Um, we have a profile of each organization with links to their website. Um, and we also have um, a resource area where we have the latest news about agriculture and food issues in China, and also um, some key documents and reports that have come out that people might not otherwise know about, things in the gray literature or, or even government reports that would help you um, learn a lot about China's food and agriculture system quickly if you, mm -hmm. if, if you wanted to. And this is really meant to give people who are interested in learning more um, an opportunity, an introduction to the issues, but also people who are already inside this sector to know who their colleagues are. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I've noticed is um, that there is um, not as much um, collaboration and information exchange as there might be. And so uh, we're hoping that through the site, we'll be able to um, eventually do things like organize webinars and um, and have a Chinese language version because there's a lot of interest, um, of naturally, in China uh, in the site. And we've had people actually volunteer to translate it into Chinese for us um, so that they can use it as a resource for exchange. Um, and uh, uh, we launched uh, in December and we've had really great feedback. Um, I would uh, encourage people to, to visit. Organizations and people come to this issue from a variety of different um, uh, personal sets of priorities. So there are organizations that really are solely focused on improving animal welfare, for instance. And then there are other organizations that they what they care about is farmers. You know, how do we improve the livelihoods or, or poverty, right? How do we um, deal with rural poverty in China? Um, and other organizations that really want to um, uh, address climate change. But where all of that meets is is China's food and agriculture system. So this is a way that maybe some unusual bedfellows might have opportunities to see where their interests coincide and they can actually work together on these issues. Something you sort of alluded to but didn't say specifically is that we're hoping to attract more funding for some of these organizations, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and and, and it, I say that by way of getting to a larger point, which is that China just introduced some new laws regarding how foreign NGOs operate in China, mm -hmm. um, what does the new government uh, policy do? Mm -hmm. And um, then maybe following that, 
what's the next starting point if you're mm-hmm. someone who does want to get involved? Well, to answer the second question first, <laughs> ChinaFoodWatch.com <laughs> is the starting point. It really does have the information you need to very quickly get up to speed about what's happening, both in the sector, but also this question that you brought up, which is the new uh, foreign NGO management law. And it, this was a law that um, was enacted um, January 1st, uh, or came into effect January 1st of 2017. The requirements of the new law are quite onerous. The um, the bottom line is that it imposes um, um, some fixed, you know, long-term fi- new fixed costs on your operations uh, in relation to China that that aren't going to change, you, you know, because of just the accounting and reporting requirements. Um, and so um, I'm afraid that it is going to mean that uh, a lot of smaller organizations that either are working in China or might have considered working in China would have a difficult time doing that. And and I think that the ways to deal with that um might be um, through something like ChinaFoodWatch.com. Maybe there can be some partnerships between different organizations so that um, a group that has uh, legal status in China can have joint projects where they're um, sharing funds and maybe some of the work outside of China is is done together, but the but the the field work um, or the on the ground work in the country would be done by the group that has uh, legal status. There is a lot of work you can do about China without having a physical presence in China. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of the great work that we're doing can continue um, research. Um, as we've been discussing, one of the very important questions is um, what is the global footprint of China's growing demand for food and how can that be managed in a way that's more sustainable and better for farmers? And uh, certainly there's lots of scope for that kind of work. So to close, how confident are you that engagement in China in the NGO space is actually going to deliver results? Here's the thing. If you're interested in agriculture and its effects on the environment, the climate, the people who are growing food, the people who are consuming food, there's no way you can turn away from engagement with China. It's the, it's the biggest producer of a lot of agricultural products. And it's also the largest consumer of even more agricultural products. And so in a globalized economy where there's we have an, a natural environment that doesn't recognize borders and we have economic flows that don't recognize borders, China is really at the center of the changes that are happening. And to not be engaged somehow, I think, would be a huge mistake. And so it's really not a question of... Um, uh, you know, how confident are you that we can deliver results? I think it's, can we afford to not work on, on this country, you know, and, and its, um, its impacts and its needs and its challenges? And I think we can't afford not to. All right. Well, Jim, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. Nice. (laughs) Always nice to be back at IATP. Uh, For more information about what you heard on today's podcast, uh, including a link to ChinaFoodWatch.com. If you want to go somewhere on the internet before you go directly there, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I also want to thank Andrew Arisso, who is our new audio and editorial intern and is uh, editing this podcast. Go, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us.